Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome to another episode of the Something for the Turbo podcast. We hope wherever you are in the world that you are well and you are enjoying these conversations. We really appreciate all the support and comments and emails that we've been receiving from you all. So thank you very much for that. If you haven't yet, though, please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you fancy it, leave us a review. And please, please, please tell all your cycling friends, spread the word. Please do help us pass the pod. Anyway, how on earth do I introduce today's guest? I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Pooley. She has 10 Olympic, World and Commonwealth medals to her name, including becoming the World Individual Time Trial Champion in 2010. She won six World Cup victories, has seven stage race victories to her name, not to mention a host of tri and duathlon wins as well. Not bad for someone who considers themselves a runner at heart. She also has a PhD in geotechnical engineering, having previously graduated from the University of Cambridge with first class degree in engineering. She managed all her studies while racing and now she's recently discovered the joys of off-road cycling and bikepacking, which she now combines with running, swimming, bouldering and riding on the road. She's currently working for the Swiss Cycling Federation, running their Faster and Female program. She's just broken the world record for Everesting for women, and she is the creator of the amazing Pocket Porridge Snacks. We discuss all of this and lots, lots more. So sit back and enjoy the conversation, and let me bring you Emma. Emma, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Tired? my cat. Yeah, I've also got my cat with me. She insists on coming to sit on my lap whenever I'm on an important call so she's come to join in so if you hear a purring noise that's not me it's the cat. <laughs> Very good well I'm glad you consider this a po- important call what's her name? Bella. Bella hello Bella. Bella hello Bella well as if we didn't have enough to talk about this week you, you've gone and broken a world record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that was kind of fun yeah that was and it, and it was a, a bit of a spontaneous decision to to have a go at it and it was really fun I'm really glad I, I did. I've kind of the Everesting thing I've kind of resisted it for a few years especially because I was sort of observed and everesting when I was at GCN when Ollie did it for a video and I kind of it was a bit theatrical and over the top <laughs> I didn't really yeah I didn't really want to buy in and then I, I think recently with all the it's been some some really good female riders who've had a crack at it and it, and it was just in it, and it, it yeah it's exactly what I like doing which is vertical and so I thought okay like don't see it as an exercise in in a mental challenge of doing the same climb over and over again and um so I decided quite spontaneously last week with a friend. He wanted to have he wanted to do a sort of some kind of cycling challenge and and yeah we, we didn't research we made a few mistakes in the planning but put it that way but yeah we had a go and it was it was quite fun and yeah I, yeah I did get the record but I wasn't sure I'd make it at some yeah, well, point. Well, we had Hannah on a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and her effort was staggering as well yeah. but you've got to nudge that a little bit further I, I think I think with regards to the Everesting thing I think that's one of been one of the nice things about lockdown is that it's something that everyone can go and do in fact the whole concept of Everest isn't really about the speed or how quickly you do it it's more more inclusive than that and it's been quite nice to see uh, amazing athletes go and, and go and get a little bit quicker and quicker each time how was it for you have you got any any good stories for us yeah a few yeah I have to say that Hannah's ride was really inspired me to do it because she, she broke the record by so much and I I kind of looked her up and thought who is this like I don't really I have to confess I don't really follow women well I don't follow any racing that much I'm, I'm more involved on the participation side of cycling nowadays and, and and road racing and I thought well she must be you know she must be at least on the British team and I looked her up and and, uh, and then I could have exchanged a few messages with her on Instagram and I'm, I'm really impressed by her and like she's clearly just an incredible athlete and 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 I'm and having looked and thought about doing it myself, I knew that there's a lot of, you know, you have to plan it quite well. And so I, I was I was by no means, I didn't think I would 
break her record but I, I have I had a different approach to it from her so I I had thought about it before and I think that if you if you want to do fast everesting you need to certainly I need to find a steep climb because if you maximize the energy that goes into moving upwards and you minimize the energy you lose in, in drag in aero drag so I and I know that I I'm better on steep climbs obviously <laughs> There's a sweet spot. So if you go too steep, you don't move forwards anymore. And so we, a friend and I, we found a, found a steep climb not too far from home because I live in Switzerland. It, it's kind of easy to find long steep climbs. And also the longer the climb, the, the more recovery you get. Because if it's really short, you barely get any recovery. And so I found this, this climb that was 13.5% for basically sort of 800 and, 880 or 800, no, 890 metres. Got a few extra metres at the top and the bottom. But what I hadn't really reckoned on was that I thought it was going to be a warmish day. But it was actually quite a hot day. And then and it was south facing and there was no wind and there's no shade on this climb and it was just brutally brutally hot and I wished I'd started at three in the morning because I just it was grim <laughs> and, and um it was just the heat was unbearable and I, I had um I planned to do it unsupported so I had all my bottles prepared I had a bottle for each lap labeled with numbers you know I'd like, I'd like to keep things tidy and on each bottle I had a, a gel and a bar taped to the bottle so I could just and I put them on a little table by the car, sort of a few hundred metres above the bottom of the climb. So I just rode up to the car, unclipped, grabbed a bottle, chucked the old bottle in a in a cardboard box and carried on. So I didn't really lose much time. But one bottle after after three hours wasn't enough for, for a 53-minute lap. And I, I found a tap near the top, but then you had to stop, get off the bike, put the bike down, turn the tap on, get back on the bike. And, you know, you lose a... You know, you lose nearly a minute each time there, and and that was a that was a big mistake. Weather, <laughs> like I wish I'd done it you know, on a cool day. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Hannah said exactly the same actually yeah. in terms of the heat and. Yeah. Knowing her and having chatted to her a couple of weeks ago, I think she she will not mind that you taking the baton on from her, and I'm sure she'll be back to give it another crack yeah. in the next uh, month or yeah. two. Yeah, actually, I reckon she. Yeah, I'm I'm, pretty, I'm I'm absolutely sure someone will break it. You know, break it soon, and I I, I wouldn't claim it's the, the the you know it's nowhere near the, the best that a woman can do, and um I look forward to it. Is it, it I, like you said about everything? I think it's a really a personal challenge, and it's 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 really I think it's about taking yourself to your limits and, and and kind of committing yourself to a struggle and you know at a certain point you don't really give a shit how fast you go you just want it to be over and you and it's when you I think when you get to that dark place in a in a ride like that whether it's an Everesting or whether it's your your first 100k ride or your first 100 miles ride it, I think that's the, the good thing about about it is it's a personal challenge and and I think everyone who, who does it you know deserves real respect and kudos and and that, that's the whole point of it so yeah I'm not I'm, I'm not fussed that someone is going to break it soon <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I finished it but I couldn't I could not have pedaled another meter I think <laughs> yeah, you were done were you Completely I was spent. so done there's a there's a restaurant at the top of the climb that I did and um, and so I you know I went past it nine times and I didn't carry money or a phone mostly because I didn't want the extra weight it sounds crazy but you know and on the last lap I was just I'm gonna stop and get an ice cream when I finish and I basically crawled into this restaurant and I was caked in salt and the lady looked at me and she's like oh you look a bit tired and <laughs> I sat on the paper, I sat on the ground and well, I got a Solero and sat on the ground and I and I was a bit sort of almost hysterical and I said, yeah, I'm tired because I've just done this climb 10 times. And she said, yeah, I know, I've been watching you all day. <laughs> She's like, what kind of idiot are you? She was so lovely. And yeah, get, sold me an ice cream. I was very happy to have an ice cream. <laughs> Yeah, I bet you were. I bet you were. And did I see you? You stopped in at a fast food place as well. Is that correct? I'm not on the ride. No, I stopped afterwards. I, afterwards. Afterwards. Yeah. Not. It's not that I. I really. In fact, I really don't like McDonald's. But 
so I've been, I've been, you know, I left home at 5.30 in the morning, drove there and we had a coffee and then we did the ride. And then and a friend came out in the afternoon to support. She rode there and stood in the sun for five hours to hand me the hand me bottles at the bottom. So just to make it a tiny bit quicker. And, and also just for a bit of moral support, you know, a friendly, a friendly, happy face. And, and so she was totally cooked. I mean, she, it's just it's exhausting hanging around in the heat. So we were driving back together. Poor thing. She was still in her cycling kit and I'd put at least some clean clothes on. And um, and there was a massive traffic jam as we were going to get onto the motorway. And I, oh no. And she said, I think we should go to McDonald's. You need McDonald's. And I said, oh, I don't really like McDonald's. I'll get a smoothie from, from the supermarket next door. And we went to the McDonald's and I haven't been in one for 20 years. And they have touchscreens now. Like, you know, the last time I went to McDonald's, there wasn't such a thing as a touchscreen. And so she showed me how to order with a touchscreen. And yeah, so I got some fries and I put extra salt on the fries. And I wasn't hungry. I felt sick. But at that point, you just need anything. I, I think I was more hungry yesterday afterwards. But um, yeah. yeah. So the, the McDonald's thing, well, everyone thinks it's really funny. And uh, like, I guess I'm kind of guilty. But like, it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting chips. It's just that they're not, it's not the kind of food I'm into. And, and it, like people who think I only did an Everesting to go to McDonald's. Like, no way. Like, I, I'd rather eat a falafel wrap any day. But but it was more. It was just like when I heard this great quote from um from a nutritionist on a ultra running podcast that the it, you're better off eating the junk food you have with you right there when you need it than waiting for five hours or three hours or even two hours for the perfect meal that you want. And and I think as athletes we have a amateur and professional we have a we have a way of getting really fussy about food and really centered on it. You know, and of course it's really important to eat good quality food, but there are points when you just need calories and and it's better to have a mcdonald's that is right there <laughs> and avoid the traffic jam go home and make the perfect salad and not eat it till 10 p.m <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah get yeah. those calories in get those calories yeah. in oh very good well massive congratulations on that why, why don't we why don't we go back a little bit because yeah. you've got quite an interesting story and you've done you've almost done we've done so much that your incredibly successful pro cycling career is almost just a, a sort of chapter in everything else that's been going on so well, well, yeah. given you probably describe yourself as a runner don't you originally yeah i'm i think i'm yeah. always going to be a runner at heart i'm not a very good runner but i'm in my heart i'm a runner definitely and i i only got into cycling when i was in my 20s, I was a student at Cambridge and running was my, I'll be honest, was was my life. So obviously I was studying, but I wasn't, you know, studying isn't always very interesting. And my kind of stress relief in my social life was all in the running club, um, the cross country running club. And I, But I ran too much and probably didn't eat enough calcium and vitamin D. And I ended up with a stress fracture and I wasn't allowed to run for six weeks, which was torment. And I didn't really know what to do with yeah. myself. So I, I borrowed a bike of a friend and I thought I'll just use it as cross training. And then I did a few like the, the university cycling club i did a few group rides and and did a few time trials and then thought i don't know i'll, I'll give triathlon a go like triathlon's super cool and you get to wear sunglasses day and night and and i could swim ish um so i thought yeah. how hard can it be you know i can i can run i can swim cycling's not that difficult so <laughs> so i started doing triathlon so i am a i was a triathlete before i was a cyclist which horrifies a lot of people but never mind and and then um i did i started doing the chain gang in cambridge and anyone who lives in the uk that no like knows what a chain gang is but for other people a chain gang is like a really fast pace line group ride so you a smallish group and you you rotate through and off the whole time and it and no one waits so it's an it is a drop ride so to speak so you know they're actually trying to drop people it's almost like the break in a, in a road race and I, I started doing that as training and um and really enjoyed the challenge and I think the first time I made it around the Cambridge chain gang I was just so chuffed like it was such a big achievement because I mean they're most there were mostly guys and, and and it didn't matter like you just everyone had to just had to try and hang on and that was really fun and then a friend persuaded me to go to a road race and then I did a road race and then I did nationals and so I 
yeah, that was when I was 22, and that was my first season. That was in 2005, and I did a bit, did basically a, a couple of road races and the nationals, and then oh, right. And is that your first one? In 2005, yeah, yeah, and then I came fourth at nationals just by just through ignorance and stubbornness, really. Like the break went, and I all I knew was that from the chain gang, you just got to hang on. So I didn't know that Nicole Cook was Nicole Cook, and I didn't know that Rachel Heal was Rachel Heal, and I didn't know who all these pro riders were. So I just hung on, and we ended up with a break of five people, and I. Yeah, just ignorance and stubbornness, basically. <laughs> and, and I, yeah, so I got to the end and I, I think I was last in the sprint, but um, that was my tradition. That, that was always my space in the sprint. So, and, and that got me kind of noticed and I, and that's what got me started. But it, and that makes it sound like it was really easy. You know, I was, I, you know, I had a team in 2006, but it actually, it's not easy. I mean, anyone who, who races in road racing knows it's, it's not simple. Like there's just so much to learn. And I, I didn't realise then how much I still had to learn. So if I'd known, I would have definitely had bothered. It was, it was a hard, hard learning process. And I, so after that summer, I, I'd finished at Cambridge and I moved straight to Switzerland to, to do a PhD. So I had all that thing about, you know, moving countries is, um, the, the cycling in Switzerland is amazing, but it took me a while to find a group of people to train with because that's really important to me to train with other people. And, and then I was racing in Belgium in 2006 for a team based in Belgium. And so I was getting the overnight train from work on a Friday night and racing Saturday, Sunday, and then the overnight train back and going straight to work on Monday. And it was I'll be honest, it was terrible. <laughs> I just, I couldn't do it. And I, Belgian racing is not my thing. It, big bunches and, you know, I, 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 I don't have the peloton skills. And I certainly didn't then. And I, I just hated it. Like, it, I could never get to the front of the bunch because there, there was never a hill. And it was miserable, so I quit. <laughs> and I went back to doing some triathlon and some running and really, you know, and working because I, I had a full-time job as a researcher then for the PhD. And, yeah, sorry, I'm going on and on about it. But then I, I, um, I ended up going to Australia in the winter, like, so around Christmas 2006. My, I've got a family in Perth and we had a family holiday. And my PhD supervisor said, oh, you know, there's a, there's a centrifuge in Perth in the geotechnical department. You could, uh, you could do some research there. And she's a triathlete. And so she knows that I love cycling. And so so she kind of she kind of gave me a bit of a nudge and said, take your bike. And so I did. Um, and I took my bike and I ended up doing lots of riding there on group rides. You know, exactly what I was describing before, like the, the fast group rides in the morning. Only this time it was even better because it was early morning. And then you'd have an amazing coffee stop because they make great coffee in Australia. And there are all these grouchy guys who didn't much like a small female turning up and hanging onto their back wheel on the rides. And and it's and that's where I learned to ride in the wind. And it's where I learned that you or you should always pull a turn, always pull a turn because um, <laughs> it makes you stronger and I, I hate going on, on those bunch rides and sitting at the back and, and not working like I think if you're in there's a bunch ride and it's rolling you should do your turn um, uh, I'd rather yeah. do a few turns and get dropped and, and uh, yeah and that got me back into it and uh, I just did so much riding that that summer well it was a winter for Europe but an Australian summer that I came back to Europe really really strong and I found a Swiss team a, a local team and we did hilly races and and there were smaller bunches so it was really different from Belgium and this small team was run you know, all by volunteers there was no one was getting paid at all but it gave me all the opportunities I needed and they were really supportive and yeah that, and, then, and I got properly into it and that was in 2007 so it wasn't like it was easy at all um, there were lots of crashes and lots of quittings and lots of I hate this why am I bothering <laughs> before I really got into racing in 2007. Yeah, obviously I then had a tremendous success culminating with, with obviously the World Championships and mm. 2008 at Beijing. But do you feel that your, your racing career is, how do you look back on it? Because do, are you happy in, since you retired or did you find retiring very difficult? How did you manage that? I'm, I'm really grateful for the experiences and the opportunities I had racing. And I yeah. I think I was, I was really lucky to come to it later. So there, I was... 
unlucky in many ways because in some ways because I didn't I didn't have the skills so it's a real advantage to learn to ride as a kid and learn all the skills and I'm, I'm a bit of a chicken so I you know I still can't do a wheelie or, or a track stand even and it's partly because I'm a bit of a chicken and I'm not very well coordinated and my balance is shit but also I I'm quite I'm quite short and my bikes were also a little bit too big for me that's just because I you have to race on 700c wheels in road races so you can get a spare wheel and and so it's really hard to do those. The bike is just inherently less stable with with a shorter stem, and when you're stretched out on it. And so I wish I'd, I wish I learned to ride as a kid for that reason. But on the other hand, I came to it with a freshness and a kind of an excitement. And and, and anything is is really fun when you're improving. And I think that's the same for anyone. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to improve from domestique to world champion, or whether you're trying to improve from a 50k ride to a 100k ride, or you know, uh, like flat riding to climbing. It doesn't really matter. I think the fun is in is is in the challenging yourself and improving. And and so I, that was really advantage because I came to it in my early 20s and I was still improving up to 2010-11 and then 2010 I had a I had a really good year and I, I mean and the whole time I was racing then I, w- I was still working at, at the university in Zurich still on this research project but I, I was allowed to go part-time again my my PhD professor she was really supportive and you know at the, at the height of my racing I was I was only working I think 40% and I do most of that in the winter so I had a lot of flexibility but it still wasn't easy and it's, it's a hard life and particularly for women cycling I mean I think it's come a long way since you finished but how that, that frustration around the gap between the, the men and the women's race I've, I've heard you say before about not having the opportunity to, to race a Tour de France it still seems crazy that, that there isn't yeah. a women's Tour de France like where, where where are you at in terms of your views on on the sport and, and how we can <laughs> where it needs to go and <laughs> That's a good how's question. it developed since you left it well it's it's moving in the right direction let's say so i try to be less i try to be like look at the positives these days because i think so look, look, just as a starting point like i think nothing changes no nothing that's like that never there are never any positive changes unless someone tries to make them and I wasn't the first one to call for more and better women's racing and coverage of racing and better basically rights for women in cycling. Um, I was not the first and I was not particularly revolutionary, but I tried to use the voice I had when I was racing, when I was winning races, let's say, to try to make the point that it is one of the most sexist sports still out there. I mean, I'm talking about pro road racing. Mountain biking is better because women and men race on the same course and they have roughly the same amount of coverage. There's just this, in, in road cycling, there's this tradition of the old races, which which are kind of worshipped by most cyclists, cycling fans. And that's cool. I think it's good to appreciate the tradition of the sport. But it, you have to also look at that sport and say, where are the women? Like the only women you see in the history of cycling are podium girls. And isn't that, isn't, doesn't anyone else feel uncomfortable about that? And, uh, and um, yeah. But, but when I say that to, uh, you know, someone from ASO or from the UCI, they think I'm just like some kind of radical man-eating feminist. And, you know, I'm proud to be a feminist, but I've, I've got nothing against men's sport. It's just, I just, I don't see how they can, they can consider it a complete sport without the women's sport there. And you wouldn't, I mean, I, I can't think of any other sports that are quite that bad. Maybe sumo wrestling. I mean, boxing and football, they've all got basically the same race, the same events for women and, and the same you know good levels of publicity and they're improving and I, I just think we wouldn't countenance a London marathon or a New York marathon or Ironman Kona without a women's race of the same distance on the same day like you know in cycling it's like the London marathon said nah women can't run a marathon uh we'll, we'll give you a, a 10k the day before you know <laughs> and that's what marathon running was like in the 50s <laughs> but we've moved on yeah. 
And the reason yeah, I know it's it's so strange because because I, I think you can still I mean that nostalgia about the history of the sport you you can still have that and then yes. try and move the sport forward exactly. on a, on an equal yeah. basis and, and yeah and and then people always come back to me with things like oh distance and prize money and and they think it's all about the money and and then they come back with like oh can women do the distance and then some of the female racers say oh we don't want to race 250k and then people say oh we don't want to be like the men's sport the men's sport is full of problems as well and dominated by the Tour de France. And that's all true. And it's all true. I, and I, I'm not trying to say, let's make women's cycling into men's cycling or, you know, let's, because at the moment it would destroy women's cycling to regulate for the same salaries because a lot of teams wouldn't be able to pay them. And, and you couldn't just, just copy paste the men's calendar because there are women's races that are really good races and have a history and also need to be adapted. But the point is more, where, 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 should, where should we be heading? Like, it shouldn't be two separate sports. And if it is, the UCI should be represented but, I kind of think, but don't you think the men's sport is a bit rudderless as well at the moment? Yes. It's probably why it's yes. been so detrimental to the women's sport. And yeah. the frustration from a marketing perspective, the women's racing is so exciting yeah. as well yeah. from a spectator yeah. perspective, which yeah, yeah. makes it even more frustrating. Yeah, I think I think it's, I mean, there's a, there's a few things in cycling. One, there's the tradition and the history, which is the people who run the sport are, in the main part, they're ex-riders and they, they know what they know. But they, I don't personally believe most of them have a perspective on the, the like the wider purpose of sport and society. Like they're obsessed with winning races. And as a pro cyclist, of course, it's your job to win a race. But that's not the point, actually, of pro sport. Like actually, it doesn't matter who wins the bit of metal on a piece of string or, or the funny shaped cup on a you know attached to a piece of stone. Like it's absolutely pointless. The whole point of pro sport, if there is one, is is for people to watch it and be entertained or inspired to do sport themselves and if and, and so like the, the media coverage has got to go hand in hand with the racing and the sad thing about women's racing which is improving but it still upsets me a bit is that there are so many amazing races that don't get seen and um and it's, it's sad because the racing is so exciting to watch and it's so inspirational and that's you know the few races that i did that had decent tv coverage like the olympics and worlds i after the olympics in london i got all these messages from people saying oh, it was so inspiring and my daughter wanted to take up cycling and I, it was just, it made me realise that was the point. Like, that is the point. And, of course, your job as a rider is to try and win stuff, but I don't think it should be at all costs. And I, I think you've got to keep in mind that the, the at the end of the day, like, pro cycling is very, very niche in, in terms of the point of the sport. Like, the main point is for transport and then, and you know, free time and leisure and health and you know pro sport isn't there for the pros actually it's there for the it's, it's there for, it should be there for society as a whole but it's very hard for the female pros to to make a living out of it at the moment because most of them don't get paid enough to live off and and that won't change until there's there's better media coverage and cycling of course making a decent video uh, sorry highlights package or live coverage of races is extremely expensive you need helicopters you need motorbikes you need drones you need a studio cutting the whole lot and and and, and that's that's really expensive. It's it's not comparable, say, tennis, where where it's relatively it's not it's not so expensive to to film a tennis match. And 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 therefore, once you've got the media coverage, you know, female tennis players went on strike. You know, as, as we know, to get equal prize money to the men, it wouldn't really work in women's cycling because if you don't have media coverage, who's going to notice that you've gone on strike? <laughs> so um, true. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm convinced. I, sorry, I just okay. before I sound like I end on it, like talk about that on a really negative note. I just think like. The women's racing that there is is really good and and really high standard and the standards really improving year on year and when there is coverage it's, it's really exciting to watch and I think that eventually the demand will come and it will come from fans of cycling who want to see women's racing and then it'll come from the sponsors of races who will say to the Tour de France look this is an embarrassment to us that you don't have a women's race you're making us look like old-fashioned sexist dinosaurs like if you don't have a women's race we'll pull out of sponsoring the Tour de France and then then they'll realise because in the end it's money that talks. 
Yeah, agreed. And maybe one of the shifts that we're starting to see in the sport might help that as well. And that's just the diversification of cycling, you know, with riders like Matthew van der Poel and, and just looking at different disciplines and, and gravel. I know you've been doing a lot of bike packing recently yep. and just looking, trying to knock down this kind of old school tribal yeah. um, sort of approach and make it more yeah. holistic and yeah. uh, approachable for everyone. Exactly. I think I'm, yeah, I'm really enjoying my sort of adventure bike. I call it, yeah, it's basically a cross bike with really, really chunky tires and it allows me to go everywhere. And it is, it's like this sort of, it's like a sort of crossbreed between a mountain bike and a road bike. And I think that a lot of people are attracted to that kind of cycling because it, you know, you don't have to commit to a tribe. You don't have to sign up to be a roadie or a mountain biker and it's just cycling. And I, I like, I like the fact that I'd like to cycling to be a seems a continuum and and, and like yeah, you say exactly. diversify and um and there's more and more there are more and more events that are they're effectively races let's face it like um the oat route and other sporties and the bike packing stuff but they're not races by the UCI and that gives amateur cyclists and expo cyclists um men and women the chance to do something really challenging and fun and exciting that isn't you know where there's no rule saying that women can only race so far and, and there's also no prize money it's all totally amateur but I think that's great like you know. I didn't start racing to win prize money. I started racing because I wanted, I enjoyed it and I wanted to get better at it. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that gives a real opportunity for women going to the sport to, to challenge themselves. And, you know, like most sportives, I think all of them, the women do the same distance as the men. It's not a problem. I mean, <laughs> it's just, you know, you just, just do the ride and that, you know, maybe maybe it'll trickle upwards i hope so into pro sport but and, and you know the, like i was saying earlier the, the pro sport is a tiny corner of cycling so it, it shouldn't matter but it does because it is the it's used as the uh, i don't even know the word in german aushängerschild so the like the it flies the flag for cycling you know pro, the pro pro sport and so when you don't see women racing the same race as men you don't there's just so little women's cycling on television like where are the female role models they're there like they're a brilliant female cyclists and and yet they're not yeah. there to be seen and that's that a bit upsets me so yeah well i mean as i said hopefully the hope well so, social media and podcasts and you know hopefully if there is a push to to change the tide that can help things and i do think that to your point you mentioned earlier having idols and inspirations for younger cyclists to aim towards it's that kind of to look at a rugby analogy i've mentioned this before it's it's you know the in new zealand they they put all the the budget into making sure the elite men and women perform at the best so they become idols and that grows the sport and that's why I think it's so important to have inspirational women achieving great things that are visible for for like my two daughters and many other sort of young girls coming through yeah I yeah it, it, it's funny because there was a point in my cycling career when I, I was a bit kind of disillusioned or very disillusioned and I didn't really see the point like it wasn't getting very well paid if at all and and I, I found the bunch really stressful and I just thought why am I doing this like I, I could go back to working 100% and have a regular job and go running in the morning and go cycling on weekends and not have all this stress and someone said to me oh no the point is is that you're inspirational and I thought no I'm not inspirational like whatever you know it's very kind of them but rubbish and I remember that when I was a kid um my idols were Paul Redcliffe and Kelly Holmes and really like hero worship and and it really did inspire me like I think you know it's not it's not the reason I run anymore it's not the only reason but you know that's what got me into it and 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 it was it wasn't just that they were fast it was it was how they came across and and how they raced and um so i thought well yeah i might not be the most inspirational but i can see the night no, i can see what the point is <laughs> so so uh, yeah 
no exactly exactly and when so let, let's um obviously I, I don't want to sort of diminish your racing career because you had some such wonderful successes but what have you been doing more recently and, and what have you been d- doing since you finished racing on the road because i think that's as as, as much as about you than than your racing career you're not you're not simply defined by your racing career is what, what i'm trying to say no it was it was a it was a period of my life and yeah there were some tough times and some really good times and so so it'll always mark me i guess the, those years and and i think that some of the friends you make in races like that the friends and the memories they stay with you but it was only it was only a brief period like i didn't as i said i didn't grow up a cyclist and i won't i'd like to not be defined by having you know won a few races once long ago and so when i stopped cycling when I like sort of officially retired in 2014 after the Commonwealth Games, I knew that I wanted to keep racing, but I wanted to keep racing in triathlon, long distance triathlon, because I saw there a sport that actually suited my my physiology better. So I kept running in the winters, and I I'm not a, like I said I'm not a great runner, but I'm good enough, especially when it's hilly and long, and I'm not the best time trialist but I'm kind of good enough when it's hilly and long so I went I went and targeted a lot of the long distance triathlon races and to a pro cyclist or someone who's interested in pro cycling that sounds like a total step down but I made more money in 2015 from prize money from triathlon than I ever did in cycling in one year and 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 I wasn't and I didn't win an Ironman like in, I think I did some Ironman races, but I was crap at them because they were quite flat. But I did races that cyclists might not have heard of, like Embranman in the in the French Alps and Alpe d'Huez Triathlon. And, you know, I wasn't like rolling in money, but I made enough to, to be, I was a professional athlete properly. By then I'd finished my PhD. It was only a few years when I was actually a full-time athlete in 2015. And um, I had a really good time I, because there wasn't all the stress of the peloton. And, and uh, I really enjoyed running, as I said. And um, I was training loads. Unfortunately, I also got massively overtrained I think in that one year I did too many races I did too much training and I had a coach who encouraged me to do low carb training which is a disaster for me physiology physiologically um I ended up just a broken wreck by the end of the year and then in 2016 I tried to go back to road racing for the Rio Olympics um and I did go back to it and it was I just never quite got up to the level I needed to be at and that was a really really hard year because it's so depressing to compare yourself to before and and the public oh the public criticism that not just criticism but the public um kind of almost a, well like abuse on twitter and things were really unnecessarily harsh like you don't need you know i mean it's only sport like you don't need to be abusive to someone on twitter because they didn't win a bike race and anyway that was a that was a tough year but then i i did another year of um of like multi-sport racing so i did duathlon and triathlon and i won the there's this there's a duathlon world championships the long distance one that's in switzerland and i won that four times I think that was probably my best that was my best event in that it was perfectly suited my physiology there was a 30k run and then a 150k bike and a 10k run and and it was all quite hilly and so that was kind of the race I was best at probably and then but uh, you know the worst nightmare it was it's great uh if it's bad weather it's tough but yeah, yeah. Uh, the funny thing is that that race every year you because the run is so hilly it really wrecks your legs and, and I'd have to I wouldn't be able to sit on the toilet like freely for about three days so I'd have to like hold onto the sink or a handle to lower myself onto the toilet because my legs are so broken and um so, so yeah. yeah it's uh it's incredible what you can do to yourself when you when you're pushing yourself like that in, in the zone but I know it wasn't just me I think everyone who did Zoffing and if anyone's listening who's done Zoffing and they feel my pain they know what it was like <laughs> yeah. it's like a knowing like yeah yeah so that was really it was a really fun time the the, the long distance triathlon years but again like you know all things have to all good things come to an end and I, I didn't I didn't ever want to stay a pro athlete forever because it's it's fun but it's also for me it was a little bit directionless I guess you could say maybe a bit yeah I, feel, I felt it felt too egotistical and I'm you know obviously I'm quite selfish I like my sport but I didn't 
wanted to do just that with my life. So yeah, that came to an end, end of 2017. And then I worked at GCN for a year. Um, that seemed like an interesting transition to a career in cycling that wasn't racing. And it was, that was a tough year as well <laughs> for various yeah. reasons. And but it was just a year. It was a lot of travel because they're based in the UK and I'm based in Switzerland. So that was already a bit exhausting. And it was a good year for learning about how the media works. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the bike media as well, I suppose. Yeah, but more just social media, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, okay. we didn't have much to do with the agency. So, but yeah, you just, I mean, I never wanted to be on Instagram or Twitter or all those things, but you have to these days, really yeah and and also yeah plenty of good times but it was i found it stressful like gcn it, all the videos are really fun and just just you know people messing around with a video recorder and making making cool films or videos but actually it's hard work <laughs> so yeah i can um, well imagine yeah yeah and uh and i wanted to just spend more time at home so yeah i've been based back in switzerland uh, since start of 2019 and at the moment i work at swiss cycling which is on a really really cool project which is yeah something they, well they came they came to me asking if i would get this project started and um, we've got a four-year project called fast and female and it's it's a combination of grassroots sport and talent id and talent development so if people are based in the uk it's a bit like breeze the breeze rides combined with girls for gold if you can imagine so but the basic point of the project is to get more women into road cycling so i mean it couldn't be more perfect because you know having started late myself i know that it can be a bit challenging getting into cycling man or woman but given that there are more men in the sport it, i think some women who start they, they look around and see only men on bikes and wonder how they fit in and um so we're yeah we're, we're working on trying to get more women into cycling and then encouraging women to take and that's into that's road cycling is it so road more of a focus on yeah i mean if someone comes on one of our rides on a mountain bike or an e-bike we obviously that's great we don't we're not we're not bikeist <laughs> there's no velominati rules here but um yeah but the, the project is very much aimed at getting more women into road cycling because mountain biking scene is already super strong in switzerland probably because of you know people like yolanda neff who are just amazing role models and and of course part of the reason for this development project is that switzerland has two world championships road world championships within five years so this year the world champs are in martini in the french-speaking oh, part yeah. of switzerland and then in 2024, they're in Zurich. So I think yeah. obviously the, the the government wants cycling to you know put on a good show for home races, and so that's part of the reason for the talent ID and talent development part of the project. It's a lot to combine into one project. I have to say, it's it's, it's not easy because that's a, it's a big scope. Yeah, especially as I'm the, kind of the only person who's on the project full time. But but it but it it's cool because so you could say that there's too much to do and. And it's very easy to get the messaging wrong. So you've got to be really careful because it's very easy to put off beginners with too much communication about elite sports. And, and, and there's a lot of perception problems, I think, especially for women in sport. They, they tend to judge themselves too harshly and be too modest. Like, oh, no, I can't keep up. They're all fast. They've all got swanky bikes and proper kit. And I've only got trainers and flat pedals. And, and so I'm not going to go on the ride. And we're trying really hard to communicate that everyone's welcome and, and that everyone starts somewhere. You know, the, the top the Swiss national champion, Marlene Royce, she's cha national champion in road, road racing and time trial. She was sixth at Worlds last year in Yorkshire in terrible conditions. And she, she started racing, I think, five years ago or riding five years ago. And and she went from being terrified in, in a group ride to, you know, being sixth in the world. And that's and, and, and still improving. <laughs> and I think that's what I want to show to beginners. Like every, everyone starts somewhere, like everyone had to learn to ride and, and be in a bunch. And, and that's and the improvement is fun. Um, it's something that I understand as well, because 
I went through it too. <laughs> and um, yeah, well, I think everyone's gone through it, unless you start really young, which I'm sure is part of the project as well. I think. What? Why is when road cycling so intimidating when you first rock up to a yeah. to a group ride? I, th- I think that's for the blokes as well as as yes, women as well. I think yeah. it's for everyone. It's not just for women, but there's um there is quite a macho culture on some rides, and it's not something that usually bothered me because I think I'm kind of stubborn, and so I can um. That's cuckoo for. Um, so I could put up with it. But I, I actually still remember. So I've got a good example here. When I first went on my very first group ride at Cambridge University, it was the University Cycling Club. And there was this guy there who, he was a few years below me, but he thought he was a really good cyclist. And he looked at me in kind of disdainfully. And, and he said something like, oh, you know, your socks don't match your gloves or something. And I was like, what? <laughs> what uh, does that got to do with it? Like, I just want to go for a bike ride. And of course, like, I think most of us cyclists, we, we also want to look good on a bike. There is quite a lot of emphasis on that and on the kind of the kit and the the... Yeah. And, and 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 that's it's cool when you're good at it, but you've got to remember that the people who not just aren't good at it, but they don't have the resources. Like they either don't have the money to buy the, that kind of kit, or you know maybe they just started cycling. You're not going to spend that much money on on Rafa kit and fancy shoes. First. Yeah, you don't know. And yeah. and then and then this elitism of how, how you look is what counts, and that really annoys me. Like I, it drives me nuts actually because I think it's so wrong. And and. And it's quite different from, say, running, where people often look really quite scruffy, even though they're very good runners. But you don't find that many really good cyclists who look scruffy. And I'm always delighted um, when you see someone on a really shit bike riding really well. Because <laughs> uh, I think it's just, yeah. it's kind of, it kind of makes a point. And I just think that, well, it just boils down to just, just be nice to other people. And especially if they're on the same group ride as you, just be nice to them and don't sneer at them because they haven't got Rafa kit and a pinarello or something and the marketing i mean it's well, a simple rule in life isn't it you treat everyone as if you want to be treated yourself how you yeah. want to be treated yourself but what yeah. why road cycling particularly because you don't really see that that mountain yeah. biking you don't get that vibe no. gravel now i mean maybe the diversification of cycling is the way that we're going to sort of knock these barriers down a bit you know i really hope so yeah i really yeah. hope so I, I went i went to my first um sort of a bike packing race last year it was a, a gravel race let's call it that but it wasn't there wasn't much gravel it was mostly rock and mud um in in the Pyrenees last year called further and I was really nervous when I turned up because I'm you know a roadie who's turned to to off-road-ish stuff and and I was expecting the kind of reception you'd get at a road ride and everyone was so friendly and they were all they were all different kinds of kit there were people in merino t-shirts there were people in full-on lycra there was no one in a skin suit but you know what I, what I mean it was no there's no uniform and I think I think the, the marketing is a little bit to blame on cycling but it's also you know it's, it's a bit like a club you know once you're in it you approve the rules and the hurdles because you've made it and 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 I think there, there's a degree where people people like to be a little bit elitist and, it, and it's good to be good to to challenge yourself and be proud of your achievements in a sport but you doesn't mean you need to judge people on how they dress or what bike they ride and um yeah exactly i think i think maybe because road cycling there are so many teams and clubs and it becomes almost tribal within tribal groups and it becomes tribal within whereas with you know bike packing because it's a sort of growing sport you're kind of that the the whole universe is is the tribe so you're you're all sort of connected together so, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I really want to do is try and, you know, all clubs, barbecues and movements like that, where you're bringing cross tribes together and, yes. and people really, because a lot of it, I think, is just a meant, you know, you're worried that, oh, that, that group over there, they're faster yeah. or stronger or yeah, whatever. Exactly. And, and actually, when you speak to them, fine. it's yeah, not yeah. the case, you know, no, they're totally, nice people. Yeah. Exactly. It's funny, but it's just when you're an outsider and you're new to a sport and new to a group, it, it can be quite intimidating. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and not everyone wants to put up with that. And, and that's why I think, Certainly, in Switzerland, we're trying to build a network of, of local group rides for this fast and female project, and 
look, we see way more women riding, like women's cycling is really exploding here in, in a good way. <laughs> um, but lots of women ride on their own because club rides look a little bit too serious and they just want to go out and have fun a bit. And now just to running and, and that's totally cool. Like you don't have to train at cycling to be a cyclist. And, you know, everyone who rides a bike is a cyclist. You don't have to train. You don't have to have a power meet. You don't have to wear Lycra. And, and yeah, I mean, it sounds, yeah. And then I, then I worry that maybe I'm part of the problem in, in these things because, you know, I put up, Obviously, I put up pics on Instagram where I'm, I'm not going to choose the picture where I look totally shit. <laughs> I'm trying to choose the picture where I look slightly less shit. And recently, I've been trying to think about how how I portray myself, and so I'm trying to put more more of the kind of gritty pictures of like sitting on the pavement eating pizza and covered in filth, or when I've fallen off my bike and stuff. Because people see it's not all the sort of posy shots with like the perfect sunset and stuff. It you know, it's like cycling is mostly about getting hungry and filthy. <laughs> Even road cycling. Like it, <laughs> I think you've opened a can of worms there that's far greater than cycling <laughs> yeah, as a society true, you, yeah. as a whole you know the, this whole like this is my perfect Instagram life oh, and God, uh, yeah. how often that's not often the case at the no. time you know no yeah. so talk I just want to ask you a little bit more about well, a couple of things but but bikepacking has been I kind of feel that you've almost gone full circle from some from yes. you're like cross-country yeah. running yes. and now you're sort of finding that enjoyment on the bike is, yeah. do you, is this it is this is this your niche now do you know what I've decided I don't want I don't want to have a niche because it puts me in a pigeonhole it puts me in the niche and I love running but I also obviously I love cycling I also really like I'm getting into bouldering I'm terrible at it and I, I like swimming and I like hiking and and so what I I don't you know I don't race professionally anymore I, I have a job I only work 80% I should add but I still I have a job and time is limited and I want to do the fun things and I want to do them with friends um, or I want to set myself challenges preferably both at the same time and so what I do know is that I really enjoy the off-road riding, but I'm never going to be a downhill mountain biker. So I, I, I want, I'm going to get myself a mountain bike at the end of this year or maybe next year. I'm really looking forward to that. And I want to go on a course and learn some skills because I, I really need, I want that challenge and I want to learn. But the off-road bikepacking stuff, I really enjoy. And I love the, the spon- so we're at home, you can be spontaneous. So I just maybe decide when the weather's good to do a two-day trip with friends and you can pack the night before and, and you can cook for yourselves on a mountaintop. And, and it is full circle because when I was when I was a kid, I wanted to be a mountaineer. I come from Norfolk, so there aren't very many mountains, but... And now I've ended up, I've gone sort of run running. Thank you to... for anyone that doesn't know Norfolk. Oh, well, come on. It's not Cambridge. It, like, it's not totally flat. We no, have, true. We have Gas enough. Hill. We have Gas Hill. But it's still, yeah, it's basically flat. And and I'm really lucky where I live. I'm, I'm in sort of pre-Alps. And so there's lots of, not just big mountains, but there's also little back roads and the really old roads that are now gravel or broken up cobblestones. And just exploring those, it, 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 it genuinely, it, it's, it's just a hobby. But it also happens to be quite good training for an Everesting, it turns out. Um, and then... And I'm running yeah. a lot still, so I, the, my main name was, in, in terms of competition, was to run mountain races and trail races. I'm on the, the Swiss Salmon team, and so all the races this year up to now have been cancelled um, because of COVID. I've got a race tomorrow, actually, my first race in quite a long time. And A race tomorrow, having Everest did three days ago. Yeah, it's yeah. a mountain marathon with 3,000 metres of climbing in it. I'd, yeah, I might change the short course, I think. But it's, but, so one of the reasons I did go on Wednesday was that I knew that if I do a marathon, my legs will be wrecked for two weeks. So it was it was last week or wait another month at least. Not for a while. And yeah. I wanted to just give it a crack. Um, and that's what I mean. That's what I mean about being spontaneous. And when you're a pro athlete, you can't do this kind of shit. You plan. No, you know, of course. And, I, and I've, I've still got the pro athlete like neuroses. Like I have an Excel table six months before the end, like from June onwards. So I'm already planning next year's events. I wouldn't call them races, but like bikepacking events or running races. And it's. It's, it's been really cool to be a bit more spontaneous this year and having to be and I've, I've really enjoyed that but but I, I'm trying not to have too much of a niche like I, I just want to do I want to challenge myself and yeah 
I would say the only niche I do want to put myself in is that I is a cookbook niche. I would say so. I um I invented some. I've started inventing recipes <laughs> a few years ago and um, got enough to fill a whole book. And um, so I want to get that out this year. You and... can't keep it that short. You got to tell everyone because I was going to ask you next yeah, about okay. this because it's something I heard about when we we met in 2017. Yeah. Pocket porridge, isn't it? Tell yeah. us, tell everyone about it. So pocket porridge is the name I came up with, and it's kind of a cheesy name, but it perfectly describes what the thing is. So it's basically oatmeal-based cooked cake and snacks, and that sounds really boring but they're basically they're very they're really tasty and I've, I've got i've got at least 35 40 different variations on the theme so the, the first one i made was just plain i'd call it porridge bread so it's kind of like an like like an oatmeal loaf and and it's kind of boring but it's also really good food for riding and then i started experimenting and i made some carrot cake versions and then i made chocolate peanut butter ones and then i made lemon blueberry ones and then i made jam filled ones that were like donuts and, and so i've ended up with loads of recipes and, and i really love the inventing i love testing them so obviously i come up with an idea of like a concept of how the flavors would work together and then you've got to you've got to work out how it works chemically so it's got to be the right consistency if it's too stodgy or too dry and then i test it with my friends which is great because they really love the free food on rides <laughs> and it's and so basically i've got the and i think i think it's a really it's a really, really simple recipe, basic recipe, and you can adapt it hundreds of ways. So to some extent, I don't see why anyone would buy a cookbook because it's super easy. And I, I love inventing recipes, but I think a lot of people who like following recipes might find it useful. And like I said, it's delicious, and despite the fact that the ingredients are simple and it's really healthy stuff. There's well, most of them have got no added sugar, and and, they, and there's no, you know, you don't a lot of healthy cooking you have to sort of it's a lot of effort. Like you've got to grow a sweet potato or you know, mash a cucumber yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. And oh God, it's just so much work. And uh, yeah. I'm not into, I'm not into, I want it to be, you know, most people don't have enough time. So anyway, these recipes, I'm writing a book and it's called Pocket Porridge because it's porridge that you can put in your pocket for rides, you see. So uh, I thought that was a clever idea. What's the plan with the book? Uh, you're starting to write it and yes. it's going to be recipes and a little bit of some sto- your yeah, stories anecdotes. and yeah. not, um, not an autobiography because I didn't want to write one of them, but autobiogra- autobiographical anecdotes that go with the recipes because there's always a story about food and and i can always remember what i ate where especially if it was good so so there'll be like lots of anecdotes from from back in the day and more recent as well and so it should be i'm hoping it'll be entertaining as well as useful and yeah i need a bit of i need a bit of motivation to make the time to write it so (laughs) so all my friends keep reminding me (laughs) you know i've been planning to write for years or something so yeah awesome well we'll yeah. you have to let us know when that comes out so yeah. we can uh, push it out for you and uh, and make sure everyone's yeah. everyone's buying it excellent look i know that you're slightly tight on time i just wanted to ask you a, a couple more quick fire questions yeah. in terms of actually i haven't mentioned vietnam to you you were, you were there last year weren't you yeah. with, with david who we've had on the podcast yeah. tell us about that, that great was place an, to ride your bike oh, it was an amazing trip so it was i think it was january to February. so i was, I'd just finished a gcn and i had some time off before the new job and and i'd been wanting i've, I've done um, a lot of well, a bit of riding in Taiwan because of the Taiwan KOM and got a friend here who's into cyclocross who loves Vietnam. So we kind of had heard about Vela Vietnam through friends in Australia. Anyway, long story short, I got in touch with them, asked them for a route. They said, no, we'll do you a tour. Want to do some gravel? Awesome. And then it was just, David wasn't on the tour, but Ash, who also runs Vela Vietnam, yeah. It was just three of us, so yeah. me, my mate, and Ash, and brilliant. it was brilliant. It was it was really hard, but, but also brilliant though. So I wanted to go and just ride my bike loads and ash and david insisted that we had a few days off in cultural places to look at temples and old fortresses and coffee plantations and i in advance i was like no i just want i'm a cyclist i want to go train and the day the best days were the days off when you know ash and david they're so knowledgeable about the culture and 
it's fascinating and and you learn about history and culture and amazing food and just um and it and looked after just the right amount like we had some five-star hotels and we also had some places that were basically huts with no running water and that was it was all cool like i'm, I'm fine with camping so it was a brilliant trip and i'm hoping to go back this christmas if, if oh, the borders brilliant. are open oh, yeah if you're allowed to get down there yeah, oh brilliant yeah, 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 yeah we're, david's, we're david's promised me an off-road everesting so yeah we'll see <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Have you been there? Yeah, he joined us a couple of weeks ago. I mean, like, I, I, that's, I mean, the the reason I I set up and found is because like it's, I love travel, I, but I, I love cycling and I love everything you get from the just the general experience of seeing new people, places, and meeting new people. And I think it gives you so much. And, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, good times. Where, where's your favourite place? I'm sure you've cycled all around the world, but where? where and you live in Switzerland, which is probably yeah. right up the top of the list. But where's your favourite place to to ride your bike? Yeah, here in Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, we haven't obviously most of the world hasn't been able to travel for a few months now and and I feel incredibly lucky that I'm here partly because we weren't locked down locked down we could ride and run just even when the when the virus was at its peak but also just it, it, it's such a beautiful country and it's so well looked after and I actually I'm in the process of of trying to get Swiss citizenship and you can have dual citizenship and I've been here for 15 years now and I, I speak Swiss German and I I decided that I wanted to to stay living here so I hope I get citizenship and the only sad thing is like missing family obviously in the UK but um, normally they'd be able to travel over here where I could go there and see them but yeah um, and my favourite corner of Switzerland there's just so many that are nice yeah there's some some little dirt roads that lead to great viewpoints with barbecues with like sort of fireplaces where you can you can light a fire and toast bread and watch the sunset those are nice corners of here magic magic well that seems a pretty apt way to to finish the chat i know how busy you are thank you so much for for taking the time huge congratulations on the everesting stay in touch let us know when the book's out won't you yes i will yeah thanks so much for making the time it's been really good to talk yeah i will let you know about the book and i will push it shamelessly And if anyone listening wants to know more, they can. I have a Pocket Porridge Instagram account, which has no recipes on it because I want you to buy the book, obviously. But you can see lots, oh, of, temp- of, course. lots of tempting photos of bits of cake, basically. And you can see a bit more about the recipes. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> and we'll get your personal Instagram in there. And when we go live, your website would have been updated. So we'll have your website in the show yes. notes as well. Awesome. Yes. And you can drop Emma a note if you've got any questions or anything like that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jules. You're a superstar. Thank you no. so much, Emma. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.